Now, this Jewish History Podcast is sponsored by my dear friend, Shali Lichtman, who dedicated it in the merit of continued health for all. And we thank him for his friendship and for his sponsorship. If you want to sponsor an episode of the Jewish History Podcast, or if you have any questions or comments, please email me at rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Before we begin, we have some very exciting news. In November, I launched a weekly email newsletter. Each Thursday, I will send out an email with something nice in the Parsha and share some cool things that I've encountered or I've learned over the past week. I know many of y'all are audio people, not exactly readers, but if you want to get these emails for free, visit rabbiwalby.com forward slash newsletter and you can subscribe. If you don't want to subscribe quite yet, you could go to my website, rabbiwalby.com and click on the newsletter tab and you could see the first five issues of the newsletter. See if it's for you. See if it's something that you want to get in your inbox each week for free, of course. Today's subject is a little bit different than what we normally do. I want to experiment and try something a little bit different as we approach the end of the calendar year. It's something that many people find endlessly fascinating and Consequently, it's worthwhile to give it a shot. Now, before we begin, I want to make an important disclaimer. According to halacha, according to Jewish law, there is a prohibition against uttering the names of foreign gods, of idols, of people that have been deified. And unless they're explicitly named in the Torah, it's forbidden to utter the name of an idol or to assign an idol an honorific. And thus, by our standards... The individual who is the subject of today's talk has the status of an idol, and therefore we refrain from calling him by the preferred name of the Christians. Now, some argue that the name that begins with a J is permitted to say because it's not really idolatry, just his name. But for sure, everyone agrees that the halachic standard is violated by using the name that begins with a C. In the Talmud, he is called Yeshu Hanatsri. In Jewish parlance, we call him sometimes Yashka, Yashka Pundrik, which may be a variant of the name Pendira, as we shall see, Osahoish, or JC. Now, there is historical opacity on the entire JC narrative in general. We have few, if any, contemporaneous accounts. There are famous forgeries. The subject is replete with misinformation and disinformation and historical misrepresentation and textual gymnastics and revisionist history. And every side, of course, is motivated to present the facts in a way that suits and advances their interests. And of course, that raises an important question. Is the Jewish account historical? Who is to say that our account is accurate? Maybe our account is also replete with inaccuracies. So I think there's two responses to this question. First of all, I feel like in subjects like this, we have some credibility. We have always acknowledged the shortcomings of our people and our leaders. When things don't look good for us, we don't shy away from publicizing it. Other nations and other countries tend to not record their shortcomings. You know, every country's version 
of history is shaded in a way, is couched, is framed in a way that makes that country look good. Do you think the Russian and the American version of what happened in World War II is identical? Of course not. You know, take, for example, the Egyptian exile. The Israelites spend 210 years in Egypt, and they're enslaved, and they're oppressed, and they're tormented. And then with 10 dramatic, miraculous plagues, the Egyptians are humbled, and they are forced to usher the Jews out of Egypt. That's a story, of course, reading the book of Exodus. Now, some have wondered, why is there so little archaeological evidence in Egypt for the miracles of the Ten Plagues and the miraculous Exodus 3,300 years ago? Now, the truth is that we do know, and this is undisputed, we do know that Egypt at the time experienced a dramatic, precipitous, unexplained decline. And they also have found like a papyrus dating to that period that says something to the effect of there's blood everywhere. Now, I'm not saying that this is conclusive, but the question can be posed, hey, how come Ramses II didn't etch a detailed account of his humbling by God on some relief or some tablet? And the answer, of course, is that no autocrat allows such shameful and embarrassing material to be preserved and publicized for posterity. The accounts get doctored. The episodes get conveniently forgotten. The successes are embellished. The humiliations are buried. The losses are whitewashed. So we see there is a tendency for nations to cover up the accounts that make them look bad. But I think Jewish accounts are the exception. You know, we have the destruction of the first temple and the first commonwealth, And why was a temple destroyed, says the Talmud? Because of our own flaws. Because we committed the three cardinal sins and we lost God's protection. Well, what about the second temple? Why was the second temple destroyed? We don't point fingers accusing others. We point fingers at ourselves because we failed in loving each other. We had baseless hatred from one to another. That's why we lost the second temple temple. We are accustomed to highlighting our own flaws and shortcomings, and that applies even to the greatest people of our history. Moses, of course, is the greatest leader of the Torah, and he is the one who is criticized most often in the pages of the Torah. And it's not just Moses. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's children, Aaron, all of them are subject to intense scrutiny. We read about the scandalous unions of Judah and Tamar, Boaz and Ruth, David and Bathsheba, the progenitors of Messiah, and those stories are not whitewashed. And there are many examples of this phenomenon. So who should you trust when evaluating the history of early Christianity and of its founder? Should you trust us or the Christians? I think there's a good argument to be made that our account is likely to be less biased than the Christians take. And I think also in addition, regardless of the historicity of our accounts, these are the beliefs that Jewish people have had over the generations, and these were the impetuses for book burnings and censorship by the Christians, and consequently it is worthy of our attention. Now, where would you go to find the Jewish take on JC? You open up the Talmud, and you won't find a single overt reference to JC. And the reason for this is that in the medieval era, the Roman Catholic Church at various times censored the Talmud. 
Sometimes they subsisted with censoring just parts of the Talmud that they found theologically problematic. Sometimes they ordered the wholesale destruction of copies of the Talmud, which, of course, at a time when the Talmud is all hand-copied, is a tremendous blow to the Jewish communities. And therefore, as of today, in the modern editions of the Talmud, we don't have in the standard editions those Talmudic citations that were edited out by the medieval censors. However, they were preserved, of course. And there is a book called Chesronos Hashas, small little volume, that preserves all the citations that were censored out. Now, in modern, very new modern editions, like the Vilna and the Schottenstein editions, they don't have it in the actual text of the Talmud, the parts that were taken out. Some editions have restored them. Many have put them in the margins of the page, and some have actually even reinserted them into the actual text. So what does the Talmud actually say about J.C.? Now, we're getting clarity regarding what it says and what it doesn't say is not so easy because the Talmud references an individual named Yeshu Hanatsri, and it's not immediately clear that this is the same Christian JC. There's multiple Yeshus in the Talmud that don't seem to be from the same time period as the Christian hero. You also may imagine that Yeshu might have been a common name. So who knows how many people were given that name, and it's possible that a lot of them, their names and their stories have surfaced in the Talmud. You don't imagine there's only one guy named Yeshu in antiquity. Moreover, the word Yeshu means savior. You would imagine that every aspiring Messiah might opt to take that as a nickname. So it's not so clear if we're dealing with the same person, if there are two distinct people that are being mentioned, or perhaps even three. What is abundantly clear is that the exact identity of this character, Yeshu Hanotsri, Yeshu the Nazarene, is not exactly so easy to figure out. Moreover, it's very important for us when we read a certain citation to try to discern if this is trying to be an historical account of something that happened in antiquity, or is this something theological? Is this a citation that is trying to convey a philosophical principle? So with that introduction, let us begin. The first citation is from the Book of Sanhedrin, page 107b. And again, if you open up most editions of the Talmud, you won't see the these words actually feature. This was censored out. But you will see something really cool. You'll notice that on this particular page of Talmud, that we know had a little bit of it censored out, the way it's actually printed there's this big empty white space on the bottom that makes it look different than any other page in the Talmud. The words don't fill up the entire page. There's this just large empty block of white space on the bottom. And the reason for this is that when the classic Vilna Talmud was printed, they didn't put in the censored parts. They couldn't put it in, but they deliberately hinted to the reader, oh, there's something missing here. And they're kind of winking at you, telling you that this page contains one of those censored pieces that were taken out by the by the Christians. 
If you want, if you want, I could show you in the show notes of the podcast. I'm going to put a picture of this particular page, and you'll see how unusual it looks that it has this big white space on the bottom. Now, it's talking about the proper way to relate to students. The Talmud tells us that a parent or a teacher should have the following approach towards their students. They should push them away. They should distance them with their left hand and bring them close with their right hand. Unlike, says the Talmud, unlike the prophet Elisha, who pushed away his attendant, Gehazi, with two hands. This story is told in the book of Kings, Kings 2, chapter 5. There was a Syrian general named Naaman, and he sought Elisha's advice on how to cure his leprosy. And Elisha told him to bathe seven times in the Jordan. And initially he was incredulous about this advice. He ultimately did it and he was healed. And he was so thankful for Elisha's cure, he offered him a huge gift. But Elisha refused. So Naaman, this Syrian general, just left. But Elisha's attendant, Gehazi, he couldn't believe what happened. He's like, you're forfeiting all these gifts. He ran after Naaman and said to him, actually, Elisha changed his mind. And he pocketed the gift himself. Now, Elisha, of course, knew what happened. And as punishment, he cursed him and he transferred Naaman's leprosy to him and his descendants forever. And in the Mishnah, Gehazi, this attendant of Elisha, he's identified as one of the four commoners who loses his share in the world to come because of his wickedness. Says the Talmud, Elisha was a bit too harsh with Gehazi. He should have pushed him away with his left hand, not with both hands. So that part is still featured in our Talmud. But here's what the censored text adds. And adds a second example. And not like Rabbi Yehoshua ben Parachia, who pushed away Yeshu with both of his hands. And tells us the story. Rabbi Shubham Prachi was one of the rabbis that leads of the Jewish people. And when King Yanai, he killed the rabbis, there was this wicked Hasmonean king named Alexander Yanai. And he was killing the rabbis. He was assassinating the rabbis. And Rabbi Shubham Prachi escaped to Alexandria, to Egypt, with his student, a gentleman by the name of Yeshu. And when things quieted down, the rabbis in Jerusalem beckoned Rabbi Shubham Prachia, who is a refugee hiding out in Egypt. They said to him, come back to Jerusalem. Things are safe. Things have quieted down. It's okay for you to come back. So they begin their return trip. Rabbi Shubham Prachia, the rabbi who is the leader of the Jewish people, together with his student, Yeshu, and they're traveling back to go back to Israel. And they stop and they spend a night in a certain inn. And because this is the great rabbi, leader of the Jewish people, they accord him so much honor, and they take such great care of him. And the rabbi tells his student, Yeshu, he says, what a beautiful achsanya this is. Now the word achsanya can mean both an inn or a host or a hostess. So the student Yeshu misinterpreted what the rabbi said, not that this is a beautiful inn, but this is a beautiful hostess. So Yeshu tells Rabbi Shubham Prachim, no, actually, her eyes are a little bit narrow. She's not that beautiful. 
So Rishul Prachia tells him, says, that's what you're thinking about? What a wicked person. And he excommunicated him. And several times, Yeshu came back to his teacher and asked to be accepted back, and he was ignored. And one day, Yeshu again petitioned to be reinstated. And the great rabbi was in the middle of saying the Shema. He was middle of praying. And this time he said, you know what? He's done his penitence. I'm going to accept him. But because he was in the middle of praying the Shema, he motioned him with his hand, say, wait a second, I'll deal with you in a little bit. And again, Yeshu misinterpreted the signal and he thought he is being rejected again. And he said, that's it. I'm fed up with it. He takes a brick and he makes it upright and he bows down to the brick, i.e. he commits idolatry. And after the teacher finishes the Shema, he says to him, okay, repent. And he says, no, I can't repent. It's too late for me. You have taught us that someone who is a sinner but causes other people to sin as well, it is too late for them. You can't repent. And concludes the Talmud, Yeshu performed sorcery, incited Jews to engage in idolatry and led Israel astray. Thus concludes the first and quite comprehensive Talmudic account of a guy named Yeshu. He is a student of Rabbi Shubham Prachia, and they are escaping the assassinations of King Yanai, and they fled to Egypt. And afterwards, on the way back, he is ostracized by his teacher, and because he is too aggressively reprimanded with both hands instead of just with the left hand, he becomes a heathen, he becomes a heretic, he becomes an idolater, and he reaches the point of no return when he causes other Jews to follow his wicked path. Well, what does this Talmud actually tell us? So first of all, is this a historical account or is this trying to convey some sort of theological or philosophical principle? I would imagine that if there's any Talmudic teaching about JC that is supposed to be historical to the time in which it happened, it would be this one. We have names of people that we know. We have timestamps and historical context for this story. Moreover, the Talmud is actually criticizing the master, Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachia, about his treatment of his disciple, of his pupil. If the Talmud was teaching us a lesson in philosophy, you don't imagine it would make up a story that criticizes the great rabbi unless it actually happened. So that's point number one. This account sounds like the text is trying to give us an account of what happened. But here's the next question. Is this the Christian JC? Who was Rabbi Shobhan Prachet and who was the king Alexander Yanai? So we know that Alexander Yanai was a Jewish Hasmonean king who reigned from the year 103 before the Common Era to the year 76 before the Common Era. If this student is the Christian JC, it doesn't seem to fit in with the timeline that is accepted by the Christians. This is during the Hasmonean era, at least a century before JC is purported to have lived in the first century of the Common Era. So this leaves us with two options. Maybe this is referring to a different Yeshu. There were lots of Yeshus. There was the Christian Yeshu of the first century of the Common Era, and there was a different Yeshu, a different sinner 
of the first century before the common era, a student of Shubham Pracha, and this is just a different account. That is one proposal. Alternatively, we could say that this is actually the Christian JC. But the Christians themselves, they changed the timeline and they moved his lifetime to being a little bit later. Why would they be motivated to delay his timeline by a 100 years or so? So I heard a very convincing theory that the Christians wanted to pin the guilt, so to speak, of the destruction of the temple on the Jews who allegedly mistreated and executed J.C. And thus they wanted to make his timeline to kind of shorten the time between his death and the destruction of the temple, which occurred in the year 68 or 70 of the Common Era. And if his story is, you know, 150 years beforehand, it's very hard to assume that they're connected. But if his story is a couple of decades prior, maybe we could blame the Jews and blame their mistreatment of of J.C. We could blame that as the cause of the destruction. Okay, that's the first source. Let's look at the next source. And again, this is part of the censored text in the Talmud. It's found in the book of Shabbos, page 104b. In this citation, the individual in question is not called Yeshu. Instead, he is called Ben Stada or Ben Pandir, as we shall see. Now, the subject matter of this particular Talmud is the question of writing on Shabbat. The Torah tells us that we cannot do various activities on the Shabbat. And one of the things that we cannot do is writing a minimum of two letters would make us liable. And the Talmud's question is, what about different kinds of writing? If it's not a pen on paper, what if you write on your skin, for example? It's not a normal conventional writing surface. Does that qualify as a violation of the Shabbat? Says the Talmud, yes. If you're on your skin, you too are liable. Well, what if you tattoo yourself? So, of course, tattooing is prohibited in general in the Torah, but is it a violation of Shabbat if someone writes something in a tattoo? Says the Talmud, it's a dispute. According to one opinion, it is forbidden. It's considered writing. According to the second opinion, it's not writing, it's something else, it's art, whatever it is. It's not considered regular writing vis-a-vis the law of Shabbat. Now, the Talmud goes and gives us a historical account of someone who did use tattooing as a means of writing. So Rabbi Eliezer, who believes that tattooing is akin to regular writing, he says, wait a minute, this guy named Ben Stada, he was in Egypt, and he wanted to smuggle out sorcery, and you couldn't do it because whenever you left Egypt, Egypt was the place known for sorcery, and they didn't want their secrets to get out. So anyone who was leaving, they would check all of their stuff to make sure that they don't, they aren't taking any, any incantations out of the land. And therefore, this guy, Ben Stada, he wanted to smuggle out incantations, sorcery, in a way that it would not be detected by the border guards. And therefore, he tattooed them onto his skin, and he was able to smuggle them out of Egypt. This was Egypt's protected IP, and he found a way to smuggle it out nonetheless. So we see, says Rabbi Eliezer, we see from this that indeed it's possible to use tattooing as a way of writing. So why would why would it not qualify to violate the Shabbat? Says the Talmud, no, this person, he was, he was a fool. 
he endangered his life to smuggle sorcery out of Egypt. He's, he's crazy. We can't use him as an example of what constitutes normal writing on Shabbat. That part we could see in the Talmud that's available to us. And here is where the censored text begins. This individual, says Talmud, he's called Ben Stada. He's not called Ben Stada. He's called Ben Pandira. So why are you calling him Ben Stada when his name is truly Ben Pandira? Says Talmud, no, actually, you're right. The husband, i.e. the husband of his mother is a guy named Stada, but the actual biological father is a guy named Pandira. The mother committed adultery, and that's why he is the biological son of Pandira, but he is assumed to be the son of Stada. Says the Talmud, is that true? Is the husband of his mother, is his name Stada? His name is Papas ben Yehuda. That is the husband of this person's mother. Says the Talmud, no. Okay, you're right. This is the bottom line. His mother is called Stada. And his father is called Pandira, but the mother's husband is a guy named Papas ben Yehuda. Says the Talmud, no, the mother can be called Stada. Her name is Miriam Magdala, Miriam the hairdresser. Rather, concludes the Talmud, her name indeed is Miriam Magdala, but she's called Stada because the word Stada means that she is an adulteress. So the Talmud has a whole back and forth as to try to identify the person who smuggled tattoos of sorcery out of Egypt. And the bottom line is that his mother is a woman named Miriam Magdala, but she's also called Stada because of her adultery. Her husband is a guy named Papas ben Yehuda. But the real father, i.e. the person who committed adultery with the mother, is a guy named Pandira. That's what the Talmud says. And again, we have to ask the question, is this the Christian JC or is it someone else? Well, we do know from the earlier account that Yeshu the student of Rabbi Shubham Prachia, was in Egypt. And this Ben Stada Pandira guy smuggled incantations out of Egypt. So that seems to fit. But one of the commentaries, one of the medieval commentaries, Rabbi Tam points out, he says, wait a minute, the husband of this adulteress, Miriam Magdala, we're told, is a guy named Papas Ben Yehuda. Now, Papas ben Yehuda is a figure that appears elsewhere in the Talmud, namely when Rabbi Akiva is congregating people to teach Torah despite the Hadrianic ban against teaching Torah. There is a man named Papas ben Yehuda who discourages him. He says, don't teach Torah publicly. And that narrative is dated towards the middle of the 130s of the Common Era. So we have Yeshu who's with Rabbi Shubham Prachia, somewhere between 103 and 76, before the Common Era. And we have the Christian account, which is in the first 30 or so years of the Common Era. And we have Papas ben Yehuda, who is a contemporary of Rabbi Kiva, about 100 years later. So this guy, Ben Stada ben Pantir, can be, we're told, the Christian JC, because it is time-stamped to the 2nd century of the Common Era. So unless there was a different Papas ben Yehuda, 
This Ben Stada character is in the second century, at least 200 years after Rabbi Shubham Prachia and his student Yeshu, who fled Egypt together. So we have two accounts that don't apparently refer to the same person. Maybe yes, but maybe no. We still cannot rule it out because there are more accounts of this Ben Stada, Ben Pandira guy. And this is, I think, where it gets interesting. The Jerusalem Talmud tells us a story of a rabbi named Rabbi Eliezer who was bitten by a snake. And there was a faith healer who had the incantations of a guy named Yeshu Pandira. And there's a whole question, are you allowed to use these incantations, this sorcery, to heal yourself? Or is it better to die and not to resort to incantations that stem from idolatry to heal yourself? Ultimately, this individual died and they said about him, it's so much better that he died. It's way better to die than to live thanks to the incantations of idolatry. And interestingly, here... These two names, and apparently these two stories, are merged together. This Ben Stada Pandira guy is also called Yeshu. And this seems to lend some credibility to the argument that these two are one and the same. And then there is the Talmud in the Book of Sanhedrin, page 67. And here's where things, I think, escalate. Because... It's talking about a guy that we executed, and it may be referring to the same guy that is mentioned in the earlier sources. Now, the background to this episode in the Talmud is the special judicial process for someone who commits the heinous and horrific violation of leading other Jews astray. Normally, we have to be very upstanding about how we judge people who commit capital crime. We have to warn them. There have to be two witnesses and they have to say, well, I know I'm going to do this and I know I'm going to get executed. I'm doing it nonetheless. We don't trick the defendant. We try to make sure they know exactly what they're getting themselves into before they commit the crime. But there is one exception. A person tries to get others to commit idolatry, says a Talmud, we do try to trick them. And what do we do? We light a candle inside. So the inside of the house is well illuminated, but the outside is not well illuminated. And we hide two witnesses outside so the person who's trying to get other people to do idolatry doesn't know about it. And we have an individual who's like a confederate who's working for us. And he goes inside and starts to talk to the person trying to get others to commit idolatry. And he says to them, tell me, what are your plans? And he says, well, I want to do idolatry. You want to do idolatry? That's a crazy idea. How can we abandon God and do idolatry? So if he repents and says, you know what, you're right, then great. But if he says, no, we have to do it, then the witnesses who were hiding, they jump out, they grab him and bring him to court and they execute this person. So again, that is still featured in our Talmud. And here is where the censored Talmud continues. And so they did to Ben Stada, Bilud, in the city of Lud, and they hung him before Pesach on Pesach Eve. And again, says the Talmud, Ben Stada, is he called Ben Stada? He's called Ben Pandira. He says, no, the father is 
actually called Pandira. But the husband of the adulteress is – his name was Stada. But again, the father is maybe his Papa Spanyuda. Ultimately, the Talmud concludes the same thing, that the actual father is Pandira. The mother is Miriam Magdala, but she's also called Stada. And the husband of the adulterous mother is Papas ben Yehuda. So if you put all these sources together, something interesting emerges. We have Yeshu. He goes to Egypt with his teacher, and then he goes astray. And we have this ben Pandir, ben Stada guy, who's also called Yeshu. He goes to Egypt, and he smuggles out sorcery, and he is hung by the court for trying to cause other Jews to become heretics. Now, there's one more source that most people are not familiar with, and this deals with the question of what is the timeline in which the Jewish court actually enforced capital punishment. The Talmud tells us, the book of Sanhedrin, page 41a, that for 40 years before the temple was destroyed, this is the second temple, the Sanhedrin, they left Temple Mount, they were permanently installed on in the temple in a place called the Marble Chamber. They left, they voluntarily abdicated their post, and they went to a different neighborhood in Jerusalem called Hanut. And the reason why they did that is because they didn't want to mete out capital punishment. The only way that any Jewish court can enforce capital crime and could execute someone is only when the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, is stationed in Jerusalem. When they leave Temple Mount and they go elsewhere, like we know they went to Yavne, other places, well then, no Jewish court anywhere in the world can do capital crime enforcement. So we have the last 40 years of the Temple's existence, the Sanhedrin leaves Temple Mount, and therefore there's no capital crime being meted out anywhere in the Jewish judicial system. So let's figure this out. The temple is destroyed either the year 68 or the year 70 of the Common Era. According to the Jewish timeline, it's the year 68. According to the commonly accepted timeline, it's the year 70. It's close enough. Well, so what is 40 years prior? It's either the year 28 or the year 30. Says a Talmud, from the year 28 or 30 and onwards, there is no capital crime enforcement. Well, when was J.C. allegedly executed? The commonly accepted Christian account is the year 33. Well, checkmate. We weren't doing executions. It couldn't have been us, right? Well, not so fast. There's another source that I found. Most people don't know this. And this is featured again in the Book of Sanhedrin, page 37b. And it tells us an interesting idea that even after capital crime enforcement ceased, the concept, the principle of capital punishment continued. And it says, if someone was liable of capital crime, the Almighty has his ways to enforce capital crime. So you know what? The court won't stone them, but maybe they'll fall off a building. Maybe an animal will crush them to death. If someone is supposed to be burned, well, maybe they'll they'll die in a house fire. If someone is supposed to be beheaded, well, maybe they'll be captured by the government. The government will behead them. If someone is supposed to be asphyxiated, well, maybe they'll drown. 
And there is an interesting concept here that the Almighty does not need human courts to meet out capital punishment, even though the human courts have ceased execution. Since the temple was destroyed, the concept continues, God has his ways. That's what the Talmud says in the book of Sanhedrin, page 37b. So the Tosfos, which is a compilation of medieval commentators found in the margins of every standard edition of the Talmud, they ask an interesting question. Again, the Talmud says that since the temple was destroyed and capital punishment ceased, we don't need the human courts to do capital punishment. God will do it. He'll find his way. Someone will drown. Someone will fall from a building, etc. Says the Talmud, why does it say that this is since the temple was destroyed? Shouldn't it be since 40 years before the temple was destroyed? Don't you know the Talmud elsewhere tells us that 40 years before the temple was destroyed, the Sanhedrin voluntarily abdicated Temple Mount, and therefore there was no capital punishment starting not from the temple's destruction, but from 40 years prior to the temple's destruction. So the Talmud should have said more accurately that since 40 years before the destruction of the temple, even though there is no more capital punishment, the Almighty has his ways. That's the question that the Tosfos asks. And they give a very cryptic answer. They say that even though 40 years before the temple is destroyed, the Sanhedrin left Temple Mount and they stationed themselves outside of Temple Mount in a neighborhood called Hanut in order to disable capital crime from being enforced. Nevertheless, when it was appropriate and fitting for them to return, they would go back to Temple Mount and they would reassemble on Temple Mount and thereby they would enable capital punishment to be enforced and therefore the actual time where capital crime ceased being something that was done by human courts is actually the temple's destruction, the year 70 or the year 68. And then the Tosfos adds cryptically, ke hahi uvda. Like that unnamed episode. Tosavos is acknowledging that there was one time at least, this that episode that everyone knows about, wink, wink, where the Sanhedrin did go back to Temple Mount because there was a special case that they really wanted to execute someone. Like that account. And the commentators explain that this is a reference to this Ben Stada character that the court actually voluntarily left but came back in order to facilitate the execution of this individual. So there's at least a medieval commentator that seems to be saying that we did execute JC in the timeline accepted by the Christians within the last 40 years of the temple's existence. There is one final Talmudic account that we must examine, and this is again featured in the Book of Sanhedrin, page 43a. This is talking about what happens when someone is about to be executed and we want to leave no stone unturned before we go ahead with the execution. We want to make sure that they're really, really guilty and therefore we solicit more testimony that may exist that may be exculpatory. So we make a pronouncement, we publicize someone's about to be executed for this and this crime, which he committed in this and this location, and these people are the witnesses. If anyone has any testimony that is germane to the subject, come share it with the court before we execute the guy. And 
again, we have a censored part of this citation. And it tells us, on Erev Pesach, on the day before Pesach, the day before Passover, Taluhu liyeshu, they hung Yeshu. And the announcement went out 40 days prior that Yeshu was going to be stoned because he committed sorcery and he caused Jews to go astray and commit idolatry. Whoever has any information that may lead to his acquittal, come share it with the court. So Talmud's asking a question, wait a minute. Do we make this announcement immediately prior to the execution or 40 days beforehand? The Mishnah seems to imply that it's right beforehand, right before the execution. Yet we know with this guy, Yeshu, it was 40 days beforehand. Which is it? Says the Talmud, well, he was a special case because he was close to the authorities. And therefore, we made a special case. We said, we'll, we'll really spend 40 days to investigate all the evidence because we don't want to kill an innocent man, especially someone who has such close connections with the ruling class. So again, in this source, we're told that we did execute Yeshu on the day before Pesach, but because he was so close to the Romans, we really spent a lot of time to try to find any evidence that may have acquitted him. Now, the censored text continues. He had five students. One guy named Matai, and one guy named Nakai, and one guy named Netzer, and one guy named Boni, and one guy named Toda. Now, what's interesting about that is that these five names are actually Hebrew words. Matai means when. Nakai means clean. Netzer means a shoot. Boni means like a ben, which means a son. And Toda means thanks or a thanksgiving offering. And they bring in the first student, Matai, and he tries to find acquittal. He says, Matai, you're going to kill Matai? And quotes a verse. Matai avo When will I come and see the face of God? How could you possibly kill me when the verse says that in a positive sense, Matai, when will I see the face of God? So they responded by quoting another verse that says, Matai yamut, when will this guy finally die? Ve'avachmo and his name be erased. And then they bring in Nakai. And he says, you're going to kill Nakai? The verse says, V'nakai v'tzadik al-taro, don't kill someone who's clean. And they again responded with another verse, B'mistarim in hidden places, Yehared Naki, a clean one will be killed. So there's a very interesting polemics here between the students of this Yeshu character. They are all presenting their name in a verse that says they should be innocent and the court is responding with a verse that says they should be killed. Again, Neitzer is brought in. He brings a verse from Isaiah. V'neitzer m'shorosh of Yifra, a shoot will sprout from its shoots. How could you kill me? And they respond again with another verse from Isaiah, chapter 14, that you have been flung from your grave like a detested shoot. Again, Boni, the son, the person whose name is, that means son, he responded with a verse, B'ni b'chori Yisrael, my son, my firstborn, O Israel, i.e. you can't kill me. And they responded, Anochi horit is I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And finally, Toda, he says, Mizmer Lasoda, quotes a verse from Psalms, and they respond, Zoveach Toda Yechabdenuni. Again, a very interesting dialogue to conclude this final citation from the Talmud, where Yeshu was killed on the day before Pesach, and his five students are also executed after they have this very unusual debate with the court, they are arguing for exculpation, and the court responds, no, you are guilty. 
So again, this seems like robust evidence that we have a historical account, at least in Jewish sources, that we executed J.C. and his five disciples for their crimes. Now, again, we have to ask the question, is this a historical account of a real event or not? There seems to be many indications that this is not necessarily a reference to a real event. First of all, the court does not hold proceedings on the day before a festival. Yet here we're told that he was executed the day before a festival. Moreover, someone who was trying to convince Jews to go astray, we learned that we don't try to find acquittal like other suspected capital crime defendants. Yet we're told it's been 40 days trying to find acquittal because they're close to the kingdom. We know that the Romans weren't close to the Christians for many hundreds of years. The next part of the Talmud, we bring in the five disciples, Matai, when will I come and see the face of God? This is not normal court proceedings. You don't make an argument that you are innocent by quoting a verse in scripture. You have to make an argument on the merits. So is this history or is this perhaps theology? It does sound a lot more like a theological debate about the feasibility of having a God incarnate sounds a lot more like that than actual court proceedings. When will I come and see the face of God, says Matai. Oh, look, from Jewish sources, it seems like there is legitimacy to the argument that God has or can be encapsulated in corporeal terms. And they responded, no, we're going to kill you nonetheless. So it seems like that this account is more likely to be a response to early Christianity than it is to be a detailed narrative of what happened in the court. It's very hard to make a definitive call. Now, once we look outside of the Talmud, it is interesting that the Christians or Christian scholars over the course of the millennia, they have found alleged references to J.C. in all kinds of places in Jewish literature and even in, in Jewish liturgy. So, for example, if you look at the Aleinu prayer that we say at the end of the end of davening, the end of our prayers, we say Aleinu l'shabeach, and we begin this prayer by saying, we thank God that he did not make us like the nations of the land and did not place us like the families of the earth. Our portion is not like theirs. Our destiny is not like their masses. For they bow down. They bow down to nothingness and futility. And they pray to a God who will not save them. But we bow down to God and we he saves us. He takes care of us. So if you look at many versions of the Elena prayer, the word is actually put into brackets because it was censored. Why? Because the word varik, which means and emptiness or and nothingness, that is the same gematria that shares the numerical value as the word yeshu. And say the Christians, aha, you are trying to hint at the fact that we bow down to yeshu, and that's why you're saying in your prayer, and therefore we're forcing you to censor that out. Is that the intention of the prayer? Highly unlikely, but it does show that the Christians managed to find references to the JC where they likely did not actually exist. There's another conspiracy theory 
that the Talmudic discussions related to Bilam are actually a reference to JC. And the, again, the, the Christian conspiracy theorists, they saying, hey, the Jews really wanted to lambast JC, but they couldn't do it. So instead they used Bilam as a stand-in for JC. And look at the Talmud. The Talmud says that he was 33 years old when he died. Oh, it must be that it's referred to the same guy to JC. Now, there is an interesting indication. The Talmud, the Book of Sanctuary, page 106a, tells us that Bilam was originally a prophet, but in the end, he was nothing more than a, just a regular sorcerer. And Rav Papa concludes, as people say, she was a descendant of princes and rulers, and ultimately, she became a harlot who hung out with the carpenters. Oh, that's evidence, say the Christian conspiracy theorists, that Bilam is actually a reference to JC, and you're embarrassing JC when you tell us that Bilam actually fornicated with his donkey, and we have to censor those things out, maybe, or look what the Jews are saying. Who knows? Is that really what the intention was? It seems very unlikely, but it is interesting that there may be a little bit of credence to this, because the Talmud lists the people that don't have a portion in Olam Abba, don't have a portion in world to come. All Jews were told by the fault have a portion in world to come, with the exception of these people. And it lists Gechazi, which earlier, it lists Achitofel, and then it lists Bilam. And the question is, why would Bilam be featured? Bilam, after all, is not Jewish. So you wouldn't think that he has a portion of the world to come. He doesn't need to be excluded. So if indeed Bilam is a stand-in for Yeshu, it makes a lot of sense. But who knows? It's hard for us to make a definitive takes on, on that. Now, there is one more source, one more Jewish source of apocryphal origin that it's important for us to discuss when discussing the Jewish take on JC. This is actually cited by several reputable Jewish sources, and that is the book called Toldos Yeshu Hanasri, the Chronicles of Yeshu the Nazarene. And this book was censored and was burned many times, and it professes to tell us our version of early Christian history. Now, there is a halachic background to this book, and that is that we're told in books of Jewish law that on the ninth day of Teves, there's a Jewish fast. We're supposed to fast. But the reason is unknown. We're not told why we're supposed to fast. According to this book, the reason why we fast on the ninth day of Teves is because a guy named Shimon Kippa died on that day. Now, who is Shimon Kippa? So the book tells us that there was a small movement, a nascent Jewish Christian movement. As we know, Christianity started off as a sect of Judaism. And the people who were adherents to this new movement, they dressed like Jews, they practiced at least overtly like Jews. It was hard to differentiate them from the rest of the Jewish population. And the rabbis, they had a major problem. We have to ferret out these Jews because they dress like us and they behave like us, but they believe in heresy. And they actually turned the Romans against the traditional Jews. So Talmud tells us a story how 
they made a prayer, a special prayer, the 19th blessing of the Amidah, that was a curse against the heretics. It was really a curse against the Jewish Christians. Anyone that was suspected to be a part of this movement, they asked them to leave the services. And if they refused to curse themselves, then we know that they outed themselves. But at this time, this is before Pauline Christianity and the law was abrogated, the Jews and the Christians were indistinguishable. So the rabbis had a meeting and they said that we have to infiltrate this Jewish Christian movement and one of us has to rise to the top. And once you get control of this movement, you abrogate the law. So this individual named Shimon, he says, that's the only solution. So all the people respond to him, okay, you know what? It's a great idea. Why don't you actually do it? So he agreed on condition that they promised him that he still gets a portion of the world to come. So he joins this Christian movement. Eventually he rises and becomes the bishop of Jerusalem. He moves to Rome and becomes the first pope, Simon Peter. And he gives approval to Pauline Christianity and he approves which book are included in the canon. And thus he is the one who made sure that these two religions go in separate directions. He's called Peter because the word Peter means poter. Poter means to absolve. He absolves the Christians of their obligation to adhere to the Torah. And apparently he was in clandestine communication with the rabbis in Israel. He is alleged to be the author of the prayer that we say on Shabbat called Nishmas Kol Chai. He wrote a prayer on Yom Kippur, according to the Machsor Vitri. He is also the one who ensured that the Christian Bible will be written in Latin i.e. it's not going to be a Jewish book, it's going to be a new religion, a new people, not for the Jews, and it's not written in the Jewish language. According to tradition, he was the one who actually named the Latin alphabet. And here's something cool. He actually put, pardon the pun, a little Easter egg in the names of the Latin alphabet to kind of wink at us to say, oh, I'm, I'm actually in this with y'all. So we know there's 26 letters in the Latin alphabet. And the middle letters are the letters L, M, N. Now, each one of these letters, or the pronunciation of these letters, is actually a Hebrew word. The word L in Hebrew is one of the names of God. The word M means mother. And the word N means there isn't. So if you just look at the middle letters of the Latin alphabet, L-M-N, that's actually a statement, God has no mother. So he's kind of winking at us, telling, you know, acknowledging how ridiculous the notion is that God would have a human mother. The bottom line is there are lots of sources and it's not clear what's historical, what's philosophical, what should we ignore. But I do believe that we have to ask the question of what are the biases of these chroniclers? And I would imagine that it's much more likely for the Talmud and the Jewish sources to be impartial than the New Testament sources. Am I more likely to believe our account of how Mary got pregnant or the Christian account? Well, one of them has more credibility than the other. Are we referring to one person? Is it the same guy? Are we dealing with a composite figure? It's really hard to know. But for sure, the 
exact identity of this JC figure, as the old saying goes, is something which is not so clear and it's a bit hard to nail down. But what we do know for sure is that JC was and always will be rejected by the Jews. He fulfilled none of the Messianic prophecies. The notion of him being divine is totally risible. And we will await the real Messiah. And we hope and pray that we will merit to see his arrival. And then the whole world, the Jews, of course, all the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims, they will acknowledge that God is the sole power. He is the creator, sustainer, and supervisor of all. He never appeared in human form. We are his people. We have his Torah. And may we be so fortunate to witness this speedily in our days. I thank you for listening. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.